0: you are interested in learning a little bit more about biblical counseling, whether for yourself, just personal growth, or even uh, just as, um, a de- even if you have a desire to eventually become a biblical counselor, maybe you're not sure, you just want to know a little bit more about it, please feel free to sign up and, and come join us uh, on Sunday. And like Chris said, there's a hybrid option uh, available as well, personal study option, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the second announcement that I have that I've been kind of uh, slow on getting to you guys is that we do have uh, we, we do have CBM Camp, the, um, the middle school and high school camps that uh, we're always a part of with some other sister churches in, in the Bay Area uh, coming up. It's going to be at the end of July and uh, the first week of August. If any of you guys would be interested in counseling uh, some of our students or even this year we have an option to be a part of the games team. So no counseling required, just games just skits and all that fun stuff no counseling required so if you're interested in any of those service opportunities please come see me i'll give you more details about that well it is really good to be back with all of you here on this friday evening uh, it has been a while since i've been able to be with you guys just because i've uh, transitioned a little more fully to our high school fellowship but i am grateful that i do have opportunities every now and then to come and speak the word to you guys just a uh, just fair warning this evening's passage is a little more theological, so we'll be bouncing around through our, um, through our Bibles a little bit. If you've uh, pre-read, you're probably looking at this and you're wondering what we're going to do with this passage. So just fair warning, there's, there's going to be a little more theology uh, and um, a little less exposition um, uh, tonight, but you know that's okay. So if you're falling asleep, I totally understand because... It'll probably be a little harder to follow on a full stomach or just, you know, you're tired. So um, yeah, no worries, but we'll try and get through this together and hopefully it'll be something that uh, will be encouraging to you as we see the beauty of God's word and uh, just uh, how great our God is. But I just wanted to let you know that it's going to be a little harder today, but hopefully you'll be able to pick up on what the main themes are. With that being said, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to see what happens after Jesus' transfiguration. Okay, so we'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Mark writes this, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they began asking him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of them. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for your word. And even though we know we're going to be uh, delving into some more theological topics this evening, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us energy, that you would give us strength to uh, power through and to really have ears that can hear what your word has to say. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be more sure of our faith and also to have a desire to love your word more as a result of our time in your word this evening. So we're grateful, Father, for this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, because we live in a fast-paced world, it can be really easy for us to miss the little details, right? Those little details that have uh, significant meaning, even if we were present to witness it. For example, in the sports world, we have slow-motion replay and instant replay after impactful plays so that we can understand the athletic achievement or bloopers even that occur right in front of our eyes. The impressiveness or hilarity of an athlete's act is often magnified when we have a chance to zoom in and see it again. Or if you're not a sports person, in the movie world, we also have little details that tell or hint at a greater story in the movies that we watch, especially in this age of fandom. After a movie or TV show releases, YouTubers break down significant lines of dialogue or Easter eggs that may be callbacks to original content or the lore that's associated with a particular IP. The enjoyment right, can be amplified because we have these little details here in Mark 9, we find that Peter, James, and John, they're basking in the afterglow of Jesus's transfiguration, while at the same time trying to figure out, what did we just see? Now, there was a sense of amazement over what they had just seen, but there was still some confusion there as well, particularly when it came to the issue of what rising from the dead meant. Now, we don't have as much trouble with this concept of Jesus dying and rising from the grave here on this side of the cross, but many of Jesus' disciples, including this inner circle of Peter, James, and John, had trouble wrapping their minds around Jesus' death and resurrection because of how they understood the coming Messiah to to be. And so we're going to study those messianic expectations more this evening when we examine two proofs. Two proofs that it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. Two proofs that it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. And the first proof is that Jesus expected death and resurrection. And the second proof is that the scriptures foretold Messiah's destiny. If you'd like a handout, by the way, you can find it on our Facebook group. I sent out the handout earlier um, and it has all the cross references and uh, other things that I've included as well. Okay, so uh, the first proof that it was necessary for Jesus uh, to die and uh, die on the cross and rise again is that Jesus expected death and resurrection. Verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So full of shock after seeing a preview of a glorified Jesus, along with those legendary figures, Moses and Elijah, Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk down the mountain. And as they descend, Jesus tells his inner circle not to tell anyone what they've just seen. It's not like Jesus was trying to hide anything or that anything fishy was going on. It's just that Jesus wanted to manage expectations of who he was was and what he had come to do here on this earth until the time was right. Previously, when Jesus gave commands for people not to tell about what they had witnessed, it was to manage their expectations. But he never told them when they could talk, right? It was just a blanket prohibition to speak, right? It's a, it was a blanket um, Telling them, don't tell anybody what you said, what you've seen today. Here in Mark 9, for the first time, we see Jesus give permission that what was seen can be told to others, but only after the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now that name or title, Son of Man, was one of Jesus' favorite uh, terms that he used to describe himself. So there was no question for those three disciples as to whom Jesus was referring. However, they were left wondering, What Jesus meant when he said that they could share what they had seen after the Son of Man rose from the dead. So verse 10, And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. If you remember, just a few weeks back, Jesus had previously taught his disciples in Mark 8.31 about how the Son of Man must suffer many things Right, be rejected by the religious leaders. Be killed and then rise again three days later. Right, so technically speaking, right, technically speaking, Jesus' disciples should not be surprised by Jesus' command not to share about his transfiguration, what they've seen about his transfiguration until after he rose from the dead. Right? They shouldn't have been surprised. But as we can see here back in verse 10, the idea hasn't quite sunk in yet. Even though Jesus had previously corrected Peter for Peter's incorrect rebuke of him, Peter still didn't understand that Messiah had to suffer, die, and rise again. And as we can see, this whole inner circle, this whole inner circle, they were wrestling among themselves about what Jesus meant. And this idea of seizing upon Jesus' statement is one about talking about it amongst themselves, right, they were keeping it to themselves, so they were listening to Jesus's command, they were keeping it among themselves, but it was almost as if, right, they're walking down the mountain, Jesus is leading them down, and then the other three are following kind of at a distance, and be like, hey, what do you think he meant by that, do you really, do you really think that he's gonna die, right, he's not supposed to die, right, maybe it means he's just gonna appear like he's dead, you know, you know, Peter, why don't you ask him? You always talk first, right? You can almost imagine them talking amongst each other, being like, what does this mean? And this wrong thinking that Peter, James, and John had about the Messiah, it's not really the fault of the Old Testament. It's not the fault of the Old Testament, but it is on, the fault is on those who had studied the Old Testament and taught it to them in other words it's not a problem with the old testament itself it's a problem with the religious leaders and how they taught about messiah they studied and taught the scriptures but did not do so as carefully as they should have and so in uh, in doing so they became like those that paul would later describe in romans 10:2 those who have a zeal for god but not according to knowledge or they had a passion for god but not according to an accurate understanding of God and an accurate understanding of the scriptures. Many took the Old Testament passages that taught about Messiah and the future kingdom of God to be passages that were solely about future political reality, right? And this is why, as people were looking for a Messiah, they weren't looking for a savior for their sins, right? They were looking for someone who could overthrow the Roman government from them, right? So when they're thinking about Messiah, this concept of someone who, of, of a Messiah who would suffer, uh, be killed, and rise again would be really foreign to them. And this is also why, right, they still didn't get it, this is also why in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus was risen right, and, they're, and he's reunited with the, apostle, with the apostles again, they come together and they talk to him and they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So you see, even after Jesus' resurrection, they're not getting it. They're thinking, so is it kingdom time now? Do we get to kill all the Romans now? Are we free yet? Right? That's what they're wondering. That's what they're focused on. Only on the political realities. Right? Only on the political realities that would make their lives better here and now. But God has something bigger in mind. God has something better in mind. He was going to save the people from their sins through Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 11. And they began asking him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So for those of us who are not as familiar with our Old Testament, this question about Elijah seems wildly out of place. We just saw Elijah make an appearance at Jesus' transfiguration. And so the majority of us, we read this question about Elijah, and if it were not for cross-references or study Bibles, we might be scratching our heads, kind of just trying to figure out, why is this here? Or why is this here? As I just hinted at, though, when we look at the cross-references in our Bibles, it can fill us in a little bit on what the disciples are talking about. If you have the NASB, your cross-reference will take you back to Malachi 4:5, and also Matthew 11:14. 14. If you have the ESV, your cross-reference will take you to Matthew 11:14, 14. And from there, you will have a cross-reference that will lead you eventually back to Malachi 4:5. So no matter which translation we use, we can at least make our way back to Malachi 4, verse 5 so we're going to get to the right place eventually. So in Malachi, I'm pretty sure the majority of you, you're not as familiar with Malachi. Maybe you know that it's the last Old Testament book before we get to the New Testament. Maybe you've heard of Malachi as the Italian prophet by people who don't know how to pronounce Malachi. They call him Malachi, right? Uh, Either way, right, Malachi, we're not as familiar with him. Uh, So what's he doing? Well, In Malachi, the prophet Malachi brings the word of Yahweh to the people who had returned from exile to live in the land of Israel. And the initial message from Yahweh was not one that people would want to hear because they had been found guilty of going through the motions of worship despite uh, despite being returned to the land. They didn't have any true love for God. How would you like that? After 70 years of exile, you return home to the land that God had promised. You're trying to worship him, and God says, you don't actually love me. What do you mean, God? What do you mean I don't love you? I'm offering my sacrifices. And God looks at you and says, no, you're not. You're only going through the motions. You're giving me the leftovers. You're giving me stuff that you wouldn't even dare serve to dinner guests. How is that pleasing to me? Right? And that, would, that would just be a dagger to the heart. Like, Oh no, are we, are we messing up again? Right? And so, uh, so that's the main thing that Yahweh is dealing with. Right? He's confronting these, these Israelites for their sin. And yet, despite their failures, right? despite the fact that they're not honoring God like they should, despite the fact that they're choosing to still live in sin and ignore God, Yahweh is telling the people that he still loves them right, that he will deal with their sin, but he still cares for them. And so he tells the people in Malachi 4, 5 to 6, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. Right, so Elijah will eventually function as one who facilitates generational forgiveness, right? He helps the people become right right with each other and right with God. Eventually, he does that. Um, But why does Elijah in Malachi 4 show up here in Mark 9? It is likely that seeing Elijah at Jesus' transfiguration may have led to some confusion, especially in in light of Jesus' reaffirmation that he was really going to die and rise again. Because you see, when Elijah is said to come before the great and awesome day of Yahweh, people are expecting salvation for Israel and judgment on the nations, right? That's what they're expecting. And so when they see Elijah appear at the transfiguration, they're just like, hey, it's Elijah, so salvation time and judgment time. Yeah, kill them all, right? That's what they're expecting. But then here Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again later. And so they're just like, "Mm, that doesn't make sense. I don't remember that in synagogue. I don't remember that um, on Sabbath school. So what is this? What is this? Because they're expecting the appearance of Elijah to signal the end is coming, right? That's what they've been taught all these years by the scribes. Now, we're going to get to Jesus' answer to the disciples' question in our next point. But what we see here amid the confusion of the disciples over the resurrection, again, is the fact that they just don't get it. Right, they heard Jesus' teaching about the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Messiah. They know he's Messiah, and yet for them, they're just like, I don't know, Jesus. I don't think you have this quite right. And maybe you're wrong about this whole suffering, dying, and resurrection business, Jesus. But what we know, right, what we know is that Jesus is not wrong. Or here on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus was not mistaken, Rather, he understood all that the scriptures had said about him. He understood why he was here on earth. And as a result, he personally expected the necessity of his own death and his, own, and his resurrection. Right? Some people have said in the past that Jesus was just a nice guy, a good teacher who got caught up in this Messiah movement, and he didn't expect to go to the cross, and he was kind of surprised when he went to the cross. Right? He ended up there accidentally as we can see, this is not the case. Jesus expected the cross and his future resurrection. In Luke, we have a passage where it says, Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He resolved himself. He steeled himself, ready to go to the cross. He was not going to be moved. He knew that death awaited, and he said, No, I am going to Jerusalem because I must die for the sins of the people. Right, so Jesus expected it. Dare I say, he wanted it. Right, because he wanted to glorify God by obeying God and doing what God wanted him to do. If Jesus had no expectation that he was about to both die and rise again, this prohibition to not tell people about what happened on the mountain would have been worthless. In fact, the disciples wouldn't have even shared the story because this is like, this is proof of failure. Right? But here we are, 2,000 years later, and we know about the transfiguration. Why? Because he rose again. Right? If he didn't rise, we shouldn't know this story because it's worthless. Right? But he did rise because it was a fact. Right? It's something that, they could, that could be verified. All it could take is just one person saying, you know, I lived in Jerusalem in those days, and let me tell you, these disciples are crazy. There was no vision of Jesus. There was no resurrection of Jesus. All it took, right? all it would take is just a few people saying, this is all a lie. Right? We're going to myth bust this, and that's it. But that's not the case. right? That's not what we see here. right? It's still here in our Bibles because it was true. Right? This is not something that was made up before the fact or even after the fact, but something that Jesus himself anticipated and expected because he knew what the Scriptures said. And this brings us to the second proof that it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. And that is that the scriptures foretold Messiah's destiny. The scriptures foretold Messiah's destiny. So we left that last point recognizing that Jesus both anticipated and expected his rejection, death, and resurrection. But why? Right? Why did he expect it? Was it because he planned on purposefully making people angry so that they would want to kill him? No. He expected it because, again, he knew what the scriptures taught. Even better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So what we see in Jesus' answer is that Jesus proves that not only does he understand Malachi 4, 5, But also that Malachi 4.5 does not disprove the necessity for Messiah to suffer, die, and rise again. By confirming that Elijah does first come and restore all things, Jesus makes it clear that the expectations people had for what Elijah would do when he would arrive on the scene is correct. It is correct. Elijah will restore all things just as the scriptures have previously said but it doesn't invalidate what else the scriptures say about the future, particularly about what Messiah will do. Now, biblical prophecy can often be complicated to interpret and understand because there are are situations when we're not exactly sure how what we just read relates to one another. There could be a prophecy that has something that could be fulfilled immediately, but then in the next sentence, there's another aspect of the prophecy that seems to be speaking about something that's far, far away, right? There's an unexpected shift in the time, right? And a good example of this might be just any of those prophecies that describe Israel's return to the, land of, uh, to the land of Israel during exile, right? Numerous passages proclaim that God will remember his people and he will return them to the land, and he did do that. Right, he did do that. We know that the people of Israel were eventually able to live in Israel. In fact, they were even, they were even living in Israel right now. Right, so the Babylonian exile, it did end, and the Persians sent Israelites back. But, but, though there were people living in the land, though the temple was eventually rebuilt... This return was not a true fulfillment, right? It wasn't a full fulfillment of what God promised because only parts of it were fulfilled, right? There were still Israelites who chose to live in other lands. They're not living in Israel today either, right? So that prophecy is not completely fulfilled. Let me illustrate this with something that one of my professors uh, came up with. Uh, It's called the Sky Monster Principle, okay? So I'm borrowing this from one of my favorite professors. Uh, he He taught us prophecy using this thing called the Sky Monster Principle. Okay, so the Sky Monster Principle, next slide, please. Right. so we, we're going to have some characters, right? Sky Monster sounds weird. Uh, it doesn't sound biblical. It's not. It's just an illustration, right? Um, but we're, we're going to have some characters, okay? We're going to have a Sky Monster. We're going to have a ship. We're going to have a captain, a sailor, and a prophet. Okay, those are our main characters in this situation. Now, we're going to have a prophecy. Next slide, please. The prophecy that the prophet will give will say this, truly, truly, I say to you that the sky monster will attack and everyone upon this boat will die and the ship will be destroyed. All right? that's the prophecy. Okay, so next day, next slide. We have the sky monster. All right, sorry, I'm not a good artist. Um, all right, so we have the sky monster. He's here, he's angry, right? That's why his eyes are red. And he kills this poor prophet man, right? And he was a prophet man because he had a beard, right? So he kills the prophet, and he breaks the mast off of the ship. Is the prophecy fulfilled? No. Why not? Because the prophecy said that everyone dies, and the boat will be destroyed. That's not what we see. So prophecy not fulfilled. Next slide. Okay, so now Sky Monster kills This other sailor, right, so prophet's dead, sailor's dead, the captain's hat is gone, and now now his head is exposed to the wind, right? Is the prophecy fulfilled? No, right, because everyone's still alive. Next slide. Now the captain is dead. So everyone on board the ship is dead. Is the sky monster principle in full effect yet? Right? No, because the ship's supposed to be burned too. Next slide. There we go. Now the ship is on fire, everyone is dead, and the ship is destroyed. Sky monster principle fulfilled, prophecy, or sorry, sky monster prophecy has been completely fulfilled, All right? So what this illustration of this poorly drawn dragon and the ship is meant to show us, right, is that when you have biblical prophecy, right, when you have biblical prophecy, every detail that God has put in the prophecy must come to pass for the prophecy to be fulfilled. If it has not been fulfilled to the T, to the letter, the prophecy has not yet come to pass. We cannot truly say that it has been fulfilled. So how does this help us understand the mention of Elijah by the disciples? Well, like we had mentioned previously, Peter, James, and John, they pointed to Elijah, and they said to Jesus, Lord, if the scribes say that Elijah must first come, doesn't this mean it's time for the coming of the kingdom, right? That's what they're wondering, and when we look at Malachi 4, 5, you look at Malachi 4, 5, what are the conditions that that come with the coming of of Elijah, right? He's going to come before the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or God come and destroy them. What we have in Israel during this day is that the people were still at odds with one another. They weren't unified. They weren't reconciled to one another. So though we see Elijah, we don't see, we don't see generational reconciliation. Right? People are still at odds with each other. So, prophecy not fulfilled. So, this can't be what, um, this can't be the fulfillment of Malachi 4 5, right? So, there are other scriptures that must be fulfilled before we can get to Elijah restoring all of these things. And it is for this reason that Jesus, at the end of Mark 9, 12, says this, and yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Jesus is helping the disciples see, you guys are trying to get all the way to the end, but you're missing all the stuff between now and the end. And he doesn't tell us which Old Testament passages that he has in mind, but passages that could come to mind for us, perhaps that speak of um, Messiah's rejection, could be Psalm 118.22, which reminds us, How the scriptures foretold that the religious leaders would reject Messiah, right? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Another passage that could come to mind would possibly be Psalm 22, which begins with words that we know from Jesus' crucifixion when we see, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. In verse 16 of Psalm 22, we see the words that predict Jesus' crucifixion when we read, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then, again, in verse 18 of Psalm 22, we read this, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Right? So this is a reminder of what the Roman soldiers did with Jesus' clothing after they prepared him for crucifixion. Another scripture that we could think of that anticipates Messiah's rejection is, of course, Isaiah 53. We read in verses 4 and 5 that Messiah was the one who bore the griefs of the people that he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. All of this is not for nothing, though, because it will be by his wounds we are healed. And again, in verses 8 through 9, we see that Jesus was oppressed and that he was judged as he was taken away, that he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, the generation who saw him, they rejected him and they killed him, which is why they eventually bury him. Right, but who was on the cross with Jesus during his crucifixion? Two wicked men. Right? So that's what we see here. Right? That he, so his grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet we also know that though he would have been buried with them, he wasn't buried with them. Why? Because a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, came and took Jesus' body and put it in a new tomb. Right? So yet he was with a rich man in his death. And so, again, we see how the scriptures back up this idea that Messiah does suffer, that he does die, and he's buried, um, he's buried with, uh, with a rich man, right, or in a rich man's tomb. And then we do see the resurrection, finally, in verses 10 through 11. Right, because it says here that it's part of God's will that Messiah die in our place. Right? Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if you would place his soul as a, as a guilt offering, right, he dies, right? that's another translation for it, he dies, but then, though he dies, he will see, how do you see if you're dead? You can't, right, you can't see if you're dead unless you rise from the dead, right, so he will see his seed, he will see his offspring, and he will be satisfied, for this reason messiah goes to the cross and will justify the many as he takes their sins upon himself so going back to mark 9:12 right with these scriptures in mind we see that the scriptures do indeed teach that messiah must be rejected that he must suffer that he must die and that he must rise from the dead. We can't talk about Elijah's role in the future judgment of the nations and the restoration of Israel until we talk about the Savior, until we talk about the things that must happen, right, that must, necessarily must happen before God's judgment comes. The great and awesome Day of the Lord, or some uh, some some passages might even say the great and terrible Day of the Lord. That happens at the very end, so it's not time for final judgment. It's not time for that aspect of Elijah's return, at least as it is mentioned in Malachi four five. It's not here yet. However, right there is a sense in which Elijah has returned, and not just at the event of the Transfiguration, verse thirteen. Of Mark 9. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So to recap, just in case you got lost with all those scriptures, right, Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to realize that though they correctly believed that Elijah would come and restore all things, their understanding of when Elijah would come was not yet, right? It was a little off. It wasn't here yet um, because we're not at the end of time. So the other scriptures need to take place before that can happen. So what Jesus says here in verse 13 with these words, but I say to you, right, it's another way that Jesus provides correction for his disciples right, um, you've heard it in Matthew 5, right, you've heard the ancients say, whatever, right, and then he says, but I say to you, right, so this is a, this is a way that Jesus teaches people, he points out what was previously said, and then he says, but I say to you, right, he reinterprets it for the people that he's teaching, so he's about to bring some greater understanding about what the scriptures teach, so what does he say? So he says, in a sense, you guys are right, disciples, Elijah has come, but not like you think, How is that possible? How can Elijah show up on the scene without triggering what Malachi prophesied? Well, it has to do with the function of Elijah. Elijah signals the end, the return of Messiah. But not necessarily just the return of Messiah for judgment. Because if you look at Malachi 3.1, Yahweh says, through Malachi, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Jewish readers understood the messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord, here in Malachi 3.1, to be Elijah. They believed that it would be through Elijah that salvation and peace would begin as Elijah would help the people be restored to one another before the coming of the Lord. And the idea of someone who would come pave the way for Messiah is not an idea that's unique to Malachi. In fact, we see a prophecy about one who will pave the way for Messiah in Isaiah 40, verse 3, where we see this, a voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, who could this be? In Matthew 3, 1 to 3, Matthew attributes the fulfillment of the one who would go before to make ready the way of God to John the Baptist. That role goes to John the Baptist. He is the forerunner. And we see that because John the Baptist was preaching a gospel of repentance due to the nearness of the kingdom, due to the nearness of God. Later in Matthew 11, Jesus, he's talking about John the Baptist to the crowds after John was arrested, and he's providing an evaluation of John the Baptist's life. And in Matthew 11.10, Jesus quotes part of Malachi 3.1 when he helps the people understand John the Baptist's role in history right when he says behold i send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you now again right when we think about prophecy all of it has to come out we only see a partial quote here which means that there's only a partial aspect of this in which john fulfills it so there's still more coming Right, there's still more coming. Later in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus even more clearly makes the connection for the crowds. He, and he, sa- he tells the people that John himself is Elijah who was to come. In Matthew 17, verse 13, we see a parallel passage to our passage tonight. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, parallel passage, all we mean by that is that there's a pa- it's a passage within the Gospels that covers the same events. All right, so Matthew covers the same thing that Mark covers here in Mark 9. There's another one, and I believe, in Luke as well, right? And so those they are parallel passages, right? And so in this case, Matthew 17 covers the same aspect of Jesus' life as Mark 9, but with a slightly different perspective, a slightly different vantage point, if you will, a slightly different purpose, if you will. And anyways, right, after... Jesus explains that Elijah has already come, we see very clearly that Peter, James, and John, they now understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist, right? That Elijah, that that John the Baptist performed that function of Elijah to prepare the way for Messiah. And if you are curious for more about how John the Baptist and Elijah are similar in terms of uh, role, you can look at Luke 117 and Luke 176. Okay, so Luke 117, Luke 176. You'll see that there. Now the reason why we spent so much time on this connection to Elijah and John the Baptist is not to be biblically nerdy. Because right? I don't think any of you get your jollies from being biblically nerdy, right? But to show, right, to show that the scriptures were not silent on what would happen to Jesus, right? Nor were we trying to, to show that the scriptures were, si- uh, were silent when it comes to who would proceed and pave the way for Messiah. The scriptures are not wrong about who Jesus is. Nor, not, so not, uh, yeah, The scriptures are not wrong about who Jesus is. And not only do the passages about Messiah's death and resurrection line up completely with Jesus' life, but even the passages that teach about what God will do before the coming of Messiah line up with what happens in Jesus' life. Elijah has come in part through John the Baptist. He is a part of the signal of the beginning of the end. Salvation is here, but judgment will not be far behind. Now God miraculously brought Elijah to heaven before Ahab and Jezebel could kill him. Right, And that happened in First uh, Kings 19. But that would not be the will of God for John the Baptist's life. Now, nothing in the scriptures tell us that the forerunner for Messiah would be killed. But what we see here in the Gospels is that though nothing says he will be killed, his life very much matches the life of Elijah, his life very much matches the life of Elijah. It was very similar. The way that the religious leaders disregarded John's ministry, the way that Herod executed John. Right, it's very similar to how the people did not listen all the time to Elijah. It was very similar to how the people or to how uh, Ahab and Jezebel desperately wanted to kill Elijah for showing them up by killing the prophets of Baal. So it's very, very similar. And what God is doing here by setting up these two as mirror images of each other, or setting up John the Baptist as a mirror image of Elijah, is signaling to those watchful eyes and those with a good grasp of scripture that Messiah is coming soon. And so because Messiah is coming soon, pay attention, be ready, because your king is coming. All that was written about Messiah would soon come to pass. And so what we're reminded of is that this is all necessary. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it was all necessary for God to accomplish his saving plan for all of mankind. All right, and this evening we had a chance to examine two proofs of that necessary death and resurrection first we were reminded that jesus he expected it right he expected death and he expected resurrection he completely understood why god the father had sent him to earth or right? he didn't come to earth and he was like what well, you want what now he knew why he was here he knew why god had sent him and so he lived his life to accomplish the will of god the father in his life he was not caught by surprise with the cross He knew that it was necessary to justify the many. Second, we were reminded from Jesus' understanding of the scriptures that the scriptures foretold Messiah's destiny. And so there should have been no surprise, not to Messiah, not to his followers, not to anyone really, that that Messiah would have to die and rise again for the people to be saved from their sins. Because the scriptures clearly teach that. Right, we saw that with Psalm, with Psalm 22, Psalm 118, with Isaiah 53. There's Zechariah 12. There's other passages, too, that we could go to that tell us that he must die, but he will also rise again. There are so many passages that we can look at that tell us of these truths, that, that proclaim these truths loudly. And so there's no ignoring what the Scriptures have said. And so in light of that understanding, right, we have to strive We have to strive to make sure that we're careful students of the Scriptures. We don't want to be caught in a position where we're like the scribes who have a passion for God, but not a passion according to knowledge. If you say you love God, how does it show up in your life? And I'm not saying, do you show up to church? I'm I'm not asking, do you show up to church, or do you serve, or do you do this or that? here in the body. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? I'm asking you, do you know the God that you claim to love and worship? When you think about him, are the thoughts that you have of him thoughts that are consistent with how he reveals himself in the scriptures? When you think about how you live your life in light of the salvation that has been graciously given to you, do you live your life in a way that desires to please God by obeying those commands that he has in Scripture? Do you love him according to full knowledge of him? Do you pursue him the way that he tells us we ought to pursue him? Or are you trying to do this in a make-your-own-adventure kind of way? Because that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Because God is a God of holiness. God is a God of absolute precision. And so, if we try to accomplish our own righteousness on our own, we will fail. And right, we will fail. Those scribes, right, when they taught that Elijah must come first, they weren't wrong necessarily. But they were wrong when it came to what had to come before that, right, when it came to who Messiah was. That's why they thought Messiah was a political savior, not one who saves them from their sins. That's why the religious leaders, when they looked at Jesus, they didn't think, wow, this guy is so great. He's such a great teacher. He's such a holy man. They thought, this guy is after our power. This guy is gonna take our authority from us. He's gonna take this man-made kingdom that we've built away from us and he's going to make all the people follow after him. That's what they were concerned about. Not about God, about themselves. All right, so for us, right, this is where we have to be, where we have to be careful students of Scripture. And to really consider right, do I love God according to knowledge? And we want to love our Lord the way that He wants us to love Him. All right, and so this is. This is my exhortation to all of you and you know if you were here tonight and you know you don't. And you know that there are other competing desires in your life and you love Jesus but you're also like but I also love this and I also love that. It's okay. Because we all wrestle with that. But I encourage you. And I encourage you as you think about you know how we are to live our lives in light of what God has revealed in the scriptures. Right, to think about how you can still pursue your goals in this life while at the same time doing everything to the glory of God. Because that's really what this is about, right? It's not wrong for you to want to have a career. It's not wrong for you to want to get married, to have children, to, um, to yeah, continue to be successful in your job. Right? It's not wrong for you to want those things. But want those things in light of the glory of God. Do those things. Pursue those things. Have ambition so long as it glorifies God. Right, figure out how you how can you do that? Right, how can you pursue the things that you want in this life while at the same time glorifying God? And this is not trying to have your cake and eat it too, right? But it's, it's trying to figure out how do I conform everything in my life to God's standards and to God's will? Because that's really what we're here for, right? That we live no longer for ourselves, but for him who bought us, right? That's our goal, right? When we say that we love God in everything, right? It's not just him at the top of the list and then everything else follows, but it's loving God through everything, right? Everything is an act of worship. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, right? And that's what we're That's what we're fighting to do. So if you find yourself in that position where you're still wrestling with it, that's okay. It's okay. These words that I'm saying to you right now, I'm not trying to shame you into any particular response. It's more just, I want for us together to figure out how can I try to live to glorify God whether I eat, drink, or whatever I do. How can we have that in the forefront of our minds to be our priority as we worship God in this life? Some application questions uh, that i have for us um, are these in what ways can we worship god without knowledge or through incomplete knowledge right, so how can we worship god without knowledge or perhaps an in incomplete knowledge uh, why was it necessary number two for jesus to die on the cross and rise again a simple question but you know it's a question that we want to make sure that we get right Um, And then number three, how can we grow more in our desire to study scripture? You know, if these applications don't fit and, you know, some of the the things that I was just preaching on, you know, they more resonate with you. Feel free to talk about those things. These are just a suggestion, right? But um, yeah, let's let's consider how we might glorify our Lord together as we consider his great plans for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for your word. And even though uh, it can be kind of um, strange to think about how, this passage relates to our life, what we do see is that we see just our need for Christ to come and live the life that he did and to, to and to die the death that he did and to rise again because that was all according to what the scriptures have said. And so in light of that, in light of just understanding how beautiful and complex and intricate your word is. Lord, we want to know more of Jesus. We want to know more of you. And we want to strive to live our lives in such a way where we do live in anticipation of Christ's second coming, the end of time. But until that time, we want to pursue the life that you want us to live how you want us to live it. And so we pray for your help in that regard, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be faithful Christians in our families, with our friends, in our vocations, in our free time, in our relationship with the rest of the church body. I do pray for any that are here this evening who may not know you, who are still lost in their sins, and I pray that, Lord, you would help them see that this faith that we have as Christians is not one of myth or foolishness, but it is one of reason. It is one of truth. And we pray that you would help them see their need, Lord, for forgiveness of sin. And how Christ did everything to accomplish that forgiveness of sin for us, so that we might be with you forever. We're grateful, Father, for the forgiveness of sins, we're grateful for Jesus Christ. We're grateful for allowing for us to study your word even more this evening. It's in your sons and we pray.